0: if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, We are almost done with the sermon series. We'll see. We may finish it next week. If not, then we're going to finish it um, the week uh, after that, okay? Um, So this has been, for me, um, I've really enjoyed this sermon series. Uh, I don't know if you have. Uh, If you've enjoyed it half as much as me, then I think you're okay. But it has been so good to be able to go through this and look at, you know what, it's true, this world is not our home. There is things about this world that create dissonance within us. It's not just all hunky-dory puppy dogs and cupcakes and everything like that. Like, like the world that we live in is broken, And it, but here's the thing, it's not our home. This is not why we are living, for this place. We want to reflect those that are in the, you know, the, the chapter of the Hall of Faith, right, from Hebrews chapter 11 that the writer of Hebrews says they were looking forward to another country, another kingdom that was coming. And, and so we live our time on this earth that, you know, we said last week that, that dash on a tombstone, like that's our life. And we live that life as an exile and an alien because we know that we are called for something beyond this. But the reality of that, I think, gives us purpose in this life because we know that we are called to be ambassadors to be missionaries, to be witnesses to the world. And so that's what the book of First Peter is all about. So let's go ahead and read a little bit of a chunk from today. Uh, we'll do a little bit of review and and then we're going to focus in just on two verses. Today we are talking about having an answer for our hope. so let's let's read from First Peter, chapter three verses thirteen through eighteen. Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God, uh, for it is better, where did I, I lost my place, or if God should will it, so you should suffer for doing what is good, what is right, rather than for what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just For the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So we've read through these these chunk of verses a couple weeks ago, but we're going to focus in on verse 15 and 16. But, But before we do that, I want us to look at this right here. Where have we been so far through the book of 1 Peter, okay? We've seen this slide almost every week, okay? And that's on purpose, so that when we think of First Peter, we'd be like, yeah, that's about living as exiles and aliens. That's the theme. We would realize that the context is suffering. These are Christians who, they had heard about rumblings of persecution elsewhere. Okay, they're in modern-day Turkey, so that's separate from Rome where Emperor Nero is. But they've heard about the persecution there, and they know it's coming. They're suffering for their faith. The crux of the book is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and the result of that is that there is a certain, and imperishable inheritance that is given, and a new identity. A new identity as an individual. We now are joined with Christ. We're a new creation. We have a new identity. Our sins have been washed away, and a new identity as a, as a collection of people, as a church. We are living stones built um, on the foundation, joined together to be this new people, this new priesthood that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and in to light. And then the exhortation the the imperative so to speak we all, I had a a professor in college a preaching class and he would say when you read scripture there's there's you know declarative sentences just this is true this is what has happened Christ has been raised from the dead you have a living hope it's just a fact and then you have the imperatives and an imperative is like a command you know, so this is you have a new identity that's the declarative okay and then the imperative is now how are you supposed to live And the whole book is to be a witness to the world because we live in a world that's watching. Do Christians really believe what they say they believe? Like, really? And if they do, does it make a difference in their life? And if so, does it matter? And maybe, just maybe, they look at us and they say, they have something that I want. And that gives us an opportunity to then have an answer for the hope that we have. And so this is where we've been in this book. And everything kind of ties around this. So in the middle of chapter 3, Peter says this. And again, this is in the context of suffering. He says, look, if you're doing good, who's going to want to do wrong to you? And we're like... Well, I've definitely suffered even though when I haven't done something wrong. And Peter knows that. Because the very next verse he says, but even if you should suffer for doing what is good, here's what you're not supposed to do in the midst of that suffering. He says, don't be terrified of their terror. Don't fear their fear. You don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to be intimidated by them. Don't become agitated or anxious about them. But rather, this is the attitude he says, instead of being fearful and afraid of the persecution or a being ostracized, or a being thought that you're weird or you're not quite whatever, this is what you are to do. This is what we are to do. This is the imperative. This is the command, okay? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That word for sanctify means to set apart, or it means to acknowledge. So he says, look, instead of being pulled this way by the persecutions or suffering of the world, fix your focus on Christ, Remember that He is your Lord and your King and what He thinks about matters more than anybody else. So set Him apart. Acknowledge Him as your Lord and your Savior in your hearts. That He's the one who has saved you and that He's the one that you want to be living for. And then here's the next part of it. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Do you see what that challenge is? It says, hey... Be ready. And what are we supposed to be ready for? What does it say up there? Or in your text, if you got your Bible open. What is, yeah, to be ready to give an account for the hope that's in you. This is what it means, okay? It says, I want you to be prepared. And not just prepared some of the time. I want you to always be ready and prepared, okay, to give a defense, okay? And, and, and not like a defense like this is a battle or something like that, but a reasoned, thought out, explanation for the hope that you have. And you know what? We're going to get into some of how, how can we do that. But here's what I want to say first. The answer that you can give for the hope that you have you don't have to have all, these, all this knowledge and all these answers and all this whatever. Like yes let's, let's be equipped and let's learn those things. But how has the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted your life? It's as simple as that. Well, in the midst of this hardship or this tragedy, I have this hope because I know Jesus is raised from the dead. In the midst of my battle with anxiety or depression, I have this foundation that I know who Christ is, and that's what carries me through it. Those are examples of of giving a reasonable account for the hope that we have. Uh, But then this this, uh, uh, verse also says, so not only are we supposed to set apart Christ as Lord, Christ is my Lord, He's my King, He's my Messiah, and to be ready, so to equip ourselves so we're ready to give an answer, but it also says how we are to give an answer. Okay, do you see the two words up there that describe how we give the answer? How about somebody from the back there? What does it say? With what? Gentleness. Gentleness, yeah. And what's the other word? Reverence. When we are sharing our faith with other people, it's not about having a better argument than them. Yes, there are things we can do to be persuasive and to have defenses for our faith. But he says, look, you are still to be about having your manner of life, the way that you live, be a witness to the world. And so as you defend your faith, as you share, this is why I have hope, he says, do it, the, the, the word that would be better is meekness. Meekness means strength under control. Do it realizing that you know that this is the truth. You know the eternal ramifications of what you are sharing. You know hell is real. And do that sharing with a meekness, a gentleness, and a respect for the person. Why? Because he says, I want you to keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you're slandered, when people look at you and they want to tear you down and revile you... Your good behavior, your whole manner of life in Christ, they'll see that and they're put to shame. So he says, look, when you are sharing the answer you have, you can do it in a way that displays the gospel as well as shares it with words. Do you know that the gospel is offensive? It is. It's offensive to say you can't save yourself. You need a savior. You're not good enough. That, that, that kind of can be offending, right? What, I'm not good enough? It can be offensive to people to say there's only one way, just one way, just one path. The good news of Jesus Christ can be offensive. So may we not add to that by, based on how we share it, right? That's what Peter is saying here. But he, here's a couple of things that as I was studying, here's what I want to answer today. Number one, How can we always be ready? What does that mean and how can we be ready? Number two, how can we share our faith with others? Or another way would be to share the reason for our hope, to share the gospel with others. And number three, if we want to share our hope, the reason for our hope, how do we cultivate our hope so that we experience it and so others see it? So they ask us. And what I want to do with is I want to start with, with number three and look a little bit at how do we cultivate this hope. And I think that there are some answers straight from the book of Peter. We could go elsewhere in Scripture, but, uh, but here's, here's something. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse thir- 13, Peter says this, Therefore, because you have this inheritance, because the gospel has been given to you, this is what I want you to do. Prepare your minds for action. Get ready. You're in a battle. You're living in a home, in a world that is not your own. Keep sober in spirit. And here's the thing. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, if we want to cultivate our hope, I put there in green, we got to water the roots of hope. It's not about being, I want to be hopeful, I want to be hopeful. It's we focus on what is the foundation of our hope. Which, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 3... We remind ourselves what that is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not some dry, dusty hope. Not wishful thinking. Not like, oh, I hope this happens, but I'm not sure. But he says, look, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the truth. And because of that, you are born again, you have new life, you have a new birth. You have birth into a hope that's living and alive. It's the idea of like there's water that's from a well and there's water from a spring that's springing out. It's alive. It's living water. It's bubbling. And it comes because Jesus rose from the dead. It's a hope that means you now have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. An inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you while you're protected here. How do we cultivate hope? One of the ways is to remember what our hope is based on. That Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And when we focus in on that, that's one of the ways that we cultivate hope inside of us. Because he says, even though now you, you, you go through hard times, this comes so that your faith is purified. Because guess what? You are receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul's. I believe the main way we cultivate hope is we focus on what it is that our hope is based on, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the inheritance that is coming. And again, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's, it's kind of not like this story I'm going to share, okay? There was a lady once um, <clears throat> that her husband would sometimes play the lottery. And so what she did, okay, she taped the lottery from the week before, Okay? And then she bought a ticket that would have won the week before and gave it to her husband. And then without him knowing when it was time for the lottery to be revealed, she played last week's lottery. And there he is going through all the numbers. Exactly right. And he thinks he's got this inheritance, right? But when he found out about it, that inheritance was one that was going to fade away because it was the wrong week. That's not the hope that we have. It's not like we have some lottery ticket that's from last time. We have from Christ the promise of resurrection from the dead. An inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade. How else do we cultivate hope? Well, I think we focus in on what is it that is the foundation of our hope. But again, it's about watering the roots. So... What are the promises that God has given us for the here and now, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us? There's a great verse in the book of Isaiah that says, when the waters rise, it won't go over your head. And when the fire burns, it's not going to scorch you. And I love that because sometimes it feels like the water of life is like floating between here and here. Anybody ever been there? Like, I can breathe a little bit. No, I can't breathe. I can breathe. And he says, look, it's not going to go over your head. I'm with you. I'm your God. I'm your Savior. I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm going to cause everything that happens in your life to work together for good. You may not understand it, but you can trust me. And when we realize that, that God is trustworthy, His promises are true, His character is trustworthy, that is how we cultivate hope. So that's one of the ways that we cultivate hope. Now, the next question is, how can we be ready? How can we always be ready to, to give an answer for the hope that we have? Let's see if we can get that up there. Can we go ahead, like, maybe three slides? Keep going. Oh, I also have this. I can try this out. Another one. Sorry, skipped ahead. Let's see. Maybe this will work. One more. Una mas. There we go. How can we always be ready? We also find the answer to this in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, as exiles and aliens, to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Stay away from those things. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day that he visits us. Okay, what is he saying here? Look, if you want to always be ready, it first comes with how you are living, not what you know. If you want to always be ready to give an answer for your hope, let God help you live differently. Let God help you say no to the things of the world. Let Him help put your, His life and His character inside of you so that when people look at you, they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father in heaven. Let God do a work in you so people see the hope. We sometimes have talked about that with the PDAs, right, of sharing our faith, of praying. You want to be ready to answer what people have? Ask for God's help. Ask for opportunities. God, will you help people to see your light in me and help them to ask me and help me to be ready. Seek to display the life that God has put inside of you and be available for people. And when the time comes, to share why you have hope and what the hope has done for you. The next way, how can we always be ready? From the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing this to a young man who's a pastor. He says, be diligent, work hard. To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, correctly handling the word of truth. So he says, look, Timothy, if you're going to be teaching the truth of God, give your life to studying God's word. Learn about it. Learn some of the answers that you can give to somebody. If somebody says, hey, I, I I, I just don't see how Jesus could really have risen from the dead. What can you say to them? What evidence can you give of your faith? The number one is how your faith has changed you. But for us to do the study of God's word and, and to maybe read some of the, the, the works of, of men and women who have given their lives to being defenders of the faith, how can we answer the questions of those who ask? So, and this brings me uh, to, to the next point is, if we want to be ready to share the answer that we have, it goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because why do we have hope? Why do we have hope? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So what I want to do for the next little bit of time here is, this is a little bit of review from our Easter Sunday. But if your hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, what if somebody says, well, I don't understand how that could happen, or that's just a bunch of hogwash, what could you say? Here's a couple of things that you can share with them that give rational real evidence that jesus really rose from the dead so here's three things we're going to look at we're going to look at Jesus' appearances after he raised from the dead we're going to look at the empty tomb which scholars across the board who are atheists to christians they all agree the tomb was empty the disciples came to an empty tomb the women came to an empty tomb and then we're going to look at the origin of the christian faith how these things can be part of that answer the first part right Why do I have hope? How has my hope impacted my life? How does that help me live my life? What am I looking forward to? Here is some of the evidence. If somebody has more questions, that we can point them to. And here's one quick thing. Two quick things. You're never the first witness. You're never the first witness. In my preaching class, one of the biggest things that impacted me was the principle of second witness. The Holy Spirit is always the first witness. At the very most, you're the second. God is working. We can trust in Him. We don't have to put it all on us. We want to be faithful. Uh, the second one is... Now I forgot what I was going to say, so maybe I'll we'll come back later, okay? Let's look at their resurrection appearances, okay? In the book of 1 Corinthians... Paul says, look, I want to remind you of the truth of the gospel, the gospel that you received in which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold form firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then here's this, and that he appeared to Peter... And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than how many people? What does it say up there? 500 people. Keep that in mind because we're going to touch on that later. 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So in Scripture, there are recorded instances that Jesus appeared to people After he rose from the dead, why does this matter? Okay, Paul is not making this up. Here if we look at the next slide. He's quoting an old Christian formula. This is something that was given to him. And he's writing it during the time that most of those 500 people are still alive. Okay, Uh, If I told you that this crazy event had happened and that my wife had been there to see it, you could go to her and say, Steph, did you really see that sheep fly across that barn? And she'd be like, no, who told you that? And you'd say, your husband. Well, he wasn't telling you the truth. And you'd be like, you come back to me and be like, hey, you lied to me. Okay? Now That's a silly example. But if I said, hey, Mike Horton saw Jesus appear and he gave him fish and he ate it. Like Jesus ate the fish that Mike gave him. And you could go to Mike and say, Mike, did that really happen? He's like, yeah, it did. You see, these things that are written, these appearances, they were written down while the people were still alive. These appearances that were there, um, they were written and circulated while the Gospels Gospels were written and circulated during the lifetime of these witnesses. So there's evidence that Jesus appeared. There was the people alive that they could have been cross-examined, so to speak, and it was not refuted. So the appearances of Jesus is a strong evidence that he really did rise from the dead. Number two, let's look at the empty tomb. Again, this is something that all across the board has been accepted by scholars. Okay, This is from the work of of William Lane Craig. And he has a lot of good things when it comes to apologetics. Uh, I don't see eye to eye with him on how he views Genesis and the creation account. I think how he looks at the resurrection is really important for us as Christians. Okay, And this is what he says. He says, once regarded as an offense to modern intelligence and an embarrassment to Christian theology, the empty tomb of Jesus has come to assume its place among the generally accepted facts concerning the historical Jesus, and it supports Jesus' resurrection. The burial story is one of the most historically certain traditions we have concerning Jesus. Now, what does this mean? Okay, What he's saying is scholars across the board will agree the tomb was empty. Now, what does that mean? Why is that evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Let's go ahead and look at the next slide. If Jesus' body had remained in the tomb, there would be no... There would be no Christianity. The disciples would not have believed that Jesus had been resurrected if his body was still in the tomb. The Jews believed in a physical resurrection from the dead, but this was at the end of time. And, and if Jesus' body was still there, the Jewish leaders could have just said, hey, here's the body. But the tomb was empty, and the body was nowhere to be found. Uh, the second part that gives evidence to this is that women discovered the empty tomb. If you were fabricating a story back in Bible times, you would not have women be the main witnesses because their testimony was not valid in court against a man. And so if this was going to be made up, you, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't have the women come to the tomb first and be the first ones to share about it. You would have some really important person or something like that. Number three, the earliest Jewish argument presupposes the empty tomb. If you read in scriptures, when the guards who were there said the tomb is empty, the Pharisees didn't say, no, it's not, check again. Or, yeah, here's the body, we took it, it's right here. They said, hey, you tell everybody that the disciples stole the body and we'll pay off your leader so that you don't get in trouble. They just were like, yep, the tomb is empty, now what story do we come up to to falsify it? And so the the reality that the tomb is empty uh, is great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about this because our hope is based on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last part I want to look at is about the origin of the Christian faith. Even the most skeptical scholars admit that the earliest disciples at least believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Again, across the board... Scholars look at and they say, yeah, the disciples really believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They really believed it. Well, why is that evidence for the resurrection? Okay, because they pinned everything on it. Without belief in Jesus' resurrection, Christianity would have never come into being. The crucifixion would have remained a final tragedy in the hapless life of Jesus. But the origin of Christianity hinges on the belief that these earliest disciples, they really truly believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, okay. And here, here's where the point comes from. If somebody denies that Jesus rose from the dead, where did Christianity come from? Just think about that. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, where did Christianity come from? Would you have given your life for something that you knew was a lie? If you were one of those disciples and you stole the body of Jesus, would you give your life for a lie? Would you live your whole life for a lie? Would you give up everything for a lie? Almost every apostle of Jesus, of the original 12, okay, Judas betrayed him and, and hung himself. The other 10 of them were all martyred. And John, they tried to kill and they couldn't. And they exiled him to the island of Patmos. Would that be worth it if Jesus had not truly raised from the dead? And this is what he says. If the coming into existence of the Nazarenes or, the, or Christians, okay, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, okay? If the origin of Christianity, which came because Jesus rose from the dead, which we find in the scriptures, if this rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? If Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, why is there Christianity today? The birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remains an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. Because you see, there's nothing in their Jewish faith that would have made the disciples say Jesus rose from the dead. Because they were looking for a resurrection, but it was one that was going to come at the end of time, not right now. And so these are three ways uh, that if somebody has questions about the resurrection, because that's what our hope is based on, that we can talk about a little bit. And I can, um, we can share the link of the, the article that this came from uh, if you want to dig more into it. A couple of things that, that may come up, maybe some of the questions people will have is, they'll say, well, well, didn't the disciples steal the body? And here's two ways we can answer that. Number one, uh, it, w- it would be like a moral impossibility for the disciples to do that. Like they base their whole life on a lie. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't think that could have happened. Um, number two, um, more, if you really think about it logically, if you're a disciple... And you've been following this man for three years, and he's the Messiah. And all of a sudden he's taken away from you, treated brutally, crucified in a horrible way, and killed. Do you think you're in a place to put this grand plan together psychologically? We're going to get past those Roman guards. We're going to open up the tomb. We're going to steal his body, and we're going to preach this lie. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? They weren't in a place psychologically to put something like that together. The next one, some people will say, well, what if Jesus didn't really die on the cross? He just kind of swooned, passed out, and they buried him, okay? Number one, this is medically impossible, okay? Like, the Romans were really good at at crucifixion, really good at it, horribly good at it. But let's just for, you know, um, imagining sake, let's just imagine what if Jesus had actually survived everything that he went through and was put in the tomb for three days with no food, no water and no medical care. Do you think he would have survived that? Okay, probably not. Right. But let's say he did. And he somehow opens up the, you know, the stone and he walks out and he appears to his disciples and says, I have conquered death. Do you think they'd believe him? I think they'd be like, you look like you're about to die, not that you've conquered death. Really, the, the swoon theory, which is one that in years past has been, has been put out there, really is only around in pop culture, okay? Uh, the, 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 um, uh, you know, the people that really study these things and argue about these things at the academic level, they don't bring this up because it, it really doesn't pass anymore. The last one is hallucinations, okay? Like, well, maybe when people saw Jesus, they just really wanted to see him, so they hallucinated. And and real quickly, some of the evidence against this is um, the frequency and variety of circumstances belie the hallucination theory. Okay, This is from William Lane Craig. Jesus was not seen once, but many times. Not by one person, but several. Not by individuals, but by groups. Not at one locale in circumstances, but many. Not only by believers, but by skeptics and unbelievers as well. The hallucination theory cannot plausibly be stretched to accommodate such diversity, okay? You don't have this idea of group hallucinations all seeing the same thing. And often if there is a hallucination, it's dealing around a certain event or place or circumstance. And this isn't what was there. And also, even though Jesus had told them he was going to raise from the dead, they didn't get it. They weren't waiting for him to come back. They were scared for their lives. And so again, I think some of the evidence we have is that if the evidence rips a hole, the size and shape of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to me that seems like some pretty strong evidence. Now my faith is not based on the evidence, it's based on the reality that it happened. And I think that's good to share with people. There is an aspect of that faith, step of faith we take. But those are ways that we can be equipped to answer for why we have the hope that we have. It's okay not to know the answers, okay? You may not be able to share all those answers from memory, okay? I can't. I have my notes here, okay? It's okay if somebody asks you to say, hey, that's a great question. Let me get back to you about that. You don't have to fake it. Don't make something up. Just say, that's a great question. I've thought about that too. Let me look into it and let's meet up for coffee and talk more about about it and talk more about Jesus. So we've, we've looked a little bit about how can we cultivate hope. We've looked a little bit about how can we be ready... And now I want to look at how can we share our hope. And here's the thing. Again, how has the truth of the gospel impacted you in your everyday life? When you face hard times. When you mess up. When you fail. When you're parenting your kids. When you're hanging out with your grandkids. How has the truth that God loves me and has saved me, how has that impacted you? Share it. Just share it. Share what God is doing and has done in your life. Because again, you're never the first witness. God is working inside of others by His Spirit. Everybody, every one of us can have an own personal answer for this. And you can have multiple testimonies about that. When we were going through a time a couple years ago trying to find uh, the house that we wanted to live in. How, how God's word and how God's uh, promises, how that was our foundation in the midst of shaky times. We could share something like that. Maybe you lost a spouse or you lost a job or you had something and the gospel is what brought you through it. You can share that. But then how do we share the gospel? Okay? When we share the gospel, there's kind of four main things we've got to cover. God right who God is his character he's loving and gracious and patient and perfect and just okay we got to share about us people and we, and we need to share about sin God is perfect and just, and sin is anything we say, think, or do that's against God's perfect standard, and that separates us from God, and so we have a problem because we're separated from God because of sin. But God loves you and me so much he sent his son Jesus to die for us, right? That's the gospel. And his death is there to pay for all of your sins, and now God's grace is held out to you. And if you'll trust him, if you'll see your need for a savior... And you ask Him to save you and trust Him, He'll save you. That's the nutshell of the gospel, the gospel in a nutshell. If you cover those things, you've shared the gospel. And there's a lot of different ways to share it. And, and I know I've shared different ways about, remember I did like the record book and all of my sins. And, and there's a lot of ways to share it. And I want to share it in a new way today um, that you could maybe use if you were having coffee with somebody and they're asking you about the gospel, how you could illustrate it. So uh, I'm going to draw it on this and so, guys in the back, when I draw something new, it's probably the next slide, I think, okay? Sound good back there? Oh, let's do this side. I know it's upside down, but it's clearer on this side. Oh, and I have my markers, okay? So here's kind of something simple that you could share with people. Kind of right over here, brokenness. You may not be able to see it, but it's, it's up on, there on the, on the screen. Broken. You probably won't find too many people that won't agree with you if you say the world that we lived in is broken and messed up, okay? COVID and everything that went along with it, right? Um, Politics and the fighting and bashing. How about the war in Ukraine that's been going on for like a year and a half? How about all the other wars that none of us know about right now that are going on all around the world? Like the world is broken and the world is is messed up. And and a lot of times people are gonna agree like, yeah, I, I see that. And maybe you could ask them, like, what are some of the brokenness that you see to get them talking about it? Uh, Then you can write over here, you can write God's perfect design. I mean, this is something you could even do on a napkin. And you can share about how, like, the world, how it is now, this is not how God designed it to be. Like, when God created the world, there was no sin, there was complete unity with Him, everything was perfect, there was no death. Like, it was paradise. That's God's plan for creation. Then it gives you an opportunity to talk about sin and how sin led to the brokenness that the world is in. To share about what sin is. That sin is when I am am sitting on the throne of my own heart. I'm doing what I want to do. And how when we... Don't live up to God's standard. We are actively leading into more and more brokenness in the world that, that we're in. It gives you an opportunity to talk about people in the midst of their brokenness. Try to escape it in different ways. Some people it's in their job or their family or their hobbies, like they just escape into that, giving everything they can to do that. Some people, it's that they do everything they can to make the world a better place. That's how they try to escape from the brokenness. For some people, it's drinking. That's, they just numb themselves with drinking or drugs or pornography or whatever. That's just, I deal with this brokenness in this way. Or eating or whatever. Like everybody has their own way of dealing with brokenness because the world is broken and we know it's not supposed to be this way and we want to make it better or we just want to not feel the brokenness. Whoops, I'm going to fall. This gives you an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Is this blocking people's view? Can you guys still see the back there if you're up here? No, I'll move a little bit this way. And I won't fall, hopefully. Then you can talk about how it was God's plan from the very beginning to send His Son, Jesus, who broke into the world, has always existed, but broke into the world, lived this life, showed us what God is like, and you can share the gospel. You can share the gospel like I just shared it a couple of minutes ago. You can share it about how there's that record book of all of our sins and how that separates us from God. But God put it on Jesus. You could share the gospel about how Jesus drank all the punishment. There's so many ways to share the gospel. And this is an opportunity to share it in one of those ways. Where you share about how God sent his son Jesus and there is an offer given to us to turn and believe. Okay, And we may know that as to repent and believe. To turn away from trying to do whatever you're trying to do to escape the brokenness of the world and believe that the only way to escape the brokenness is because Jesus died in your place. And when you do that, you will receive His Spirit, you're saved, and now you have the rest of your life to grow to be more like God desires you to be. But it doesn't stop here. As you're growing... God sends you back to go into the brokenness, encounter real people who have real needs, who need a real Savior, to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. to proclaim the excellencies who's taking you out of darkness and into light. So the way I look at it is people are either here or they're here. Maybe somewhere in between. Still living in the brokenness. Having accepted Christ and seeking to grow in Him. So my question is, where do you see yourself in that picture? So something like this is a great way that you can share the gospel of Jesus in a way that lets them go, okay, where, where do you see yourself? And then the conversation goes from there. Well, I'm living in brokenness, and I am doing my best to escape from it. And it's not working. Well, we talk about it you know, I recognize this brokenness and I want to get to Christ, but I just feel I'm not good enough. He could never forgive me or love me. Well, then you can share about how there is no sin too big to be forgiven. So this can be a great tool, one of the ways that you can be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. So what does this mean for us? What are some of the so what's? Number one, I challenge you, I exhort you, set your hope on the grace that's coming when Jesus is revealed. Let your hope be on the reality that Jesus conquered death, has forgiven your sins, and he's coming back someday. That's how you cultivate hope. In heaven, in the inheritance, there's no sickness, there's no tears, there's no death, there's no struggle with sin, there's no selfishness. Like, how awesome would life be if it was like that? Well, one day we'll experience that. Set your hope there. Then the next part, let's do some of those PDAs of evangelism. Pray, display, be available. God, help me, equip me to be able to share an answer. Bring opportunities for me to share with those. Help me to cultivate relationships with those that are not, not close to you. God, help me to live out my faith to display your character in me and help me to be available to just connect with somebody. And then I challenge you. Do some self-reflection so you're ready. Think about, how has my hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted my life? If somebody said, hey, how come you're like this? What's something you could share? Think about it. Have a couple of those just in the back of your mind so you're ready. And then the next thing, study to be ready. Maybe you can look at some of the resources of, hey, if somebody has a question about this, how can I study so I can be ready? And at the time, I encourage you, share boldly. With meekness and respect, speaking the truth in love. Because you know what? Sometimes some people get way over on one side where they lose that meekness and gentleness and respect. But some of us on this other side, we can be so afraid to fret, offend somebody that we don't speak the truth in love. Because sometimes we think like, well, I don't want to say this thing that's so going to cause them discomfort or this. But That's a very narrow narrow view of love. When we seek to love somebody from an eternal perspective, we realize that saying something that, that maybe hurts and feels offensive is really the best thing, most loving thing to do for them, for their eternal life and their eternal soul. So may God give us boldness and meekness and wisdom so that we have an answer. We're ready to answer for the hope that we have. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you will equip us more and more that we may have an answer for the hope that we have. God, will you help us to cultivate our hope in you that when the world wants to pull us this way or that way or the waves seem like they're crashing around, help us to fix our eyes on you, our author and perfecter of our faith, the one who's gone before us, the one who's forgiven us, the one who leads us right to the throne room of you, God. Will you help us to cultivate that hope and live in that hope? God, will you provide opportunities for us to, to grow in relationships with those who don't have that hope? Will you help us to be ready to share how the hope we have in you has helped us, changed us, is changing us, Will you make us missionaries here in our midst? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.